0: Previously on Brokers, Bagmen, and Moles.
1: It was chaos. It was uh, not something that I ever thought could be pierced.
2: I'm not a traitor. I'm an FBI agent posing as a traitor.
1: Oh, this is dirty. And, you know, click the recorder on. You're in danger of compromising the other things you're doing. I've been an FBI agent, and I've been trying to make a case against criminal activity down there. And you and I did some of it.
3: So we're in uh, the South Loop, the financial district. We're on, uh, this is Jackson Boulevard, which is the world famous Chicago Board of Trades right here. Uh, Been there for over a hundred years. This is Stretch from
0: a few years ago when we first began this podcast.
3: And across the street over here is the Dirksen Federal Building, which of course uh, you never want to be in there because you're either serving jury duty or you did something really bad.
0: The Dirksen Federal Building is home to the U.S. District Court of the Northern District of Illinois. And Stretch was right. It wasn't a place you wanted to end up. Not only did it house federal criminal and bankruptcy courts, it was also home base for the Chicago unit of the FBI.
3: So I mean, there had to be hundreds of FBI agents in the city in the late 80s, early 90s going after all kinds of corruption in this city. So. You know, that's the nickname uh, Crook County, so to speak. Four of those FBI agents were
0: on the floors of the exchanges, just a few blocks away from the Dirksen Federal Building. For the traders who would be indicted, this is where their trials were held.
3: The court trials, all the guys that went to court, it, it all played out right there, and the ones that were able to, they just walked back and were able to start trading again, and some people had to leave the business. but. Yeah, it's a weird coincidence that they're a block apart, and like I said, never want to be in these buildings, so.
0: I'm Andrzej Nagpaul, and this is Brokers, Bagmen, and Moles.
4: There was no one case out there that sort of told you the whole picture. It was just saw calves.
1: My stomach was burning when I would go to bed at night. I felt sick. So yes, I was very worried. One of the guys was sleeping. I said, well, this could be good or this could be bad. I don't
5: know which one it is, but... I think it's no more than that percent of rotten apples that every industry has. The prosecutor wants to be the law
2: firm that's getting the guys off. The guys in the law firm want to be the judge. It's all the
0: fucking circle. The world first learned that FBI agents were infiltrating the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the Chicago Board of Trade in January of 1989. Seven months later, in August, the indictments in this case were finally announced. The FBI used extraordinary means to detect extraordinary fraud. Many of the articles and news reports at the time talked up the severity of the crimes. The indictments which are returned today charge in each and every instance the participation by brokers
5: and traders in illegal schemes which defrauded customers. What we are talking about here are hundreds of customers involving thousands of trades in which fraud was perpetrated and losses incurred by those customers because
0: of this scheme. Technically, there were two separate FBI investigations. The one at the Board of Trade was called Operation Sour Mash, and the one at the Merck was called Operation Hedge Clipper. Not quite as cool as other local investigations like Operation Greylord, Operation Family Secrets, or my favorite, Operation Silver Shovel. Each of the operations had two separate trials, one for each pit an FBI agent was in, for a total of four trials. As the government built their cases, they realized they had their work cut out for them. Here's FBI undercover agent Randy Janet.
1: Prosecutors you know, reviewed the 302s and decided which cases they wanted to make. 302s were the daily reports that agents had to write
0: to memorialize what happened in the pit that day. Kind of like a crime diary. There's roughly 250 trading days a year, and the agents were in the pit for almost two years. That's a lot of reading. No wonder
1: it took so long to get to trial. There were a lot of, quote, illegal trades done that weren't charged because they were smaller in scope and not believed to be, you know, endemic to what those guys were doing or not provable that it was. So we uh, went with what we could, and they picked out. We didn't, you know, we never can choose our own cases for prosecution, it's up to the prosecutor what they feel comfortable with.
0: One thing they were comfortable with was convincing traders to plead guilty. In the first of four trials, that strategy worked for Agent Mike Bassett over at the bond pit at the Board of Trade. There was one
2: broker who agreed pretty quickly uh, to just plead out and be done with it. Uh, the second broker, the one that I dealt with m- most frequently uh, in my, in, during the operation, uh, changed lawyers a couple times and was just held out for quite a while before he ultimately ended up pleading out. And as a result, I had to plead out to the whole thing, is my recollection.
0: Only three traders were indicted in the large bond pit. Two brokers and one clerk. And all three pled guilty. So there was no trial. Next up was the Swiss franc pit, where Randy was. Randy's case, like Mike's, was a small one, with only five traders charged. So far, the indictments in these cases were not living up to the sweeping allegations of the government.
4: As many as a hundred brokers and traders are alleged to have systematically cheated
0: customers out of millions of dollars. Randy remembers one of the guys in his pit who cooperated. His name was Bill Walsh. We outlined how Walsh used Agent Jackson as a bagman in Episode
1: 8. Finally, near the trial date, uh, reached a cooperation agreement. I was shocked because of what I'd been told about his lawyer. And uh, so the first time we sat down to go over stuff, uh, and again, he always called me Jackson. Jackson was Randy's undercover name. He said, hey, Jackson, I just want to tell you, man, I, uh, I owe you for getting me out of this. And I did not buy that. I said, look, Bill, here's the deal. I was doing what I was doing and you were doing very well in your life. And you do not have to kiss up to me by saying, I'm a good guy. I know I ruined a big part of your life for now, which I know you'll recover from, but I don't want to hear any of this false. He goes, I'm serious. My stomach was burning when I would go to bed at night. I felt sick. I couldn't sleep. He goes, now that this is all behind me, I sleep like a baby. And I realized I had to get out of there. I said, all right, well, you don't owe me anything. I
0: asked Randy if he thought Bill felt guilty for stealing from customers and if that was why he couldn't sleep at night.
1: No, I think it was the stress of being there. And, um, you know, Bill never felt guilty when I would hand him 800 bucks to fly away for the weekend. No, he was okay with that. As in, the guy never felt guilty...
0: When Randy helped him steal from his customers. In total, two of the five traitors indicted in Randy's pit cooperated, leaving three that would go to trial and fight the charges. Although the federal government has a 95% conviction rate at trial, Randy was still worried if the jury would be able to understand the complexity of the crimes.
1: Even with my friends today, they'll say, "Hey, so what was that case about?" And I'll start explaining it about locals and then outside traders. Well, hold, on. I don't. What are you saying? And I'm, ah, It's it's a mess. It's just stealing. That's all it is. It's hard to explain, and unless you're there, sitting, watching, and absorbing it, or have worked in it, it's not easy to grasp. So, with a jury, darn right, a lot of white collar cases are very complicated. So yes, I worry very much about not only judges, old judges understanding this, but a jury. People do not want to put somebody away unless they're sure. And I'll be real honest with you, on a lot of white collar cases, they're not. So yes, I was very worried.
0: A full 15 months after the investigation was leaked, Randy's case finally went to trial. It was May 10th, 1990, a cloudy, windy day with scattered showers and a high of 54 degrees, or what we call in Chicago, a beautiful spring day. The courtroom was packed with friends and family of the accused and fellow traders who were there to show support. The opening remarks of the trial were full of fireworks. Randall Janet was unable to correctly perceive events as they occurred right in front of him. He didn't have the slightest conception of what he was doing. He was either simply confused or utterly incompetent. After the opening statements
1: things did not get any easier. And then I think I was on the stand for two weeks. And uh, it it was pretty vicious cross-examination. A lot of accusations that were untrue.
0: During his first day on the stand, Randy stumbled. A defense attorney asked him to show the courtroom some of the hand signals used in the pit. When asked to show a cell signal, he held his arms out And gestured in towards himself. Unfortunately, that's a buy signal. The court, full of traders who understood the pits, erupted in laughter. Although Randy was rusty with the hand signals, he did have his tape recordings to play for the jury. And he had hours of them. A lot of what was captured, according to the government, were secret, pre-arranged trades between brokers and locals. And those were illegal because all customer orders were supposed to be announced loudly in the pit, creating an auction process that gave all locals an equal chance to trade with the broker.
1: There were some bad trades. This may have been the day that, I, that the markets went crazy. They ended up putting limits in the, side, the swings of like 100 ticks and it would stop. So there were things that had to be fixed.
0: What he's saying here is that the markets were moving so quickly one day that brokers didn't get all their orders filled at the
1: correct prices. Those trades were um, were handled by a brokerage group. I turned my recorder on. The defense was, hey, you know, yeah, this, what you heard, that was, he was just confirming earlier made trades. Defense attorneys quickly
0: pointed out that after trades were made in the pit through a combination of shouts and hand signals, it was a rule that traders had to vocally confirm their transactions. So, the defense was claiming that the tapes didn't capture illegal pre-arranged trades. What they
1: actually heard were traders just confirming recent trades. But you know, it's a good argument. It's a good defense. Well, unfortunately for the defense, they brought in as an exhibit the actual trading cards. And you can follow the times on them and the prices on the exchange. These were done way after those trades would have been made initially.
0: Back then, all traders recorded their activity on what looked like little note cards. And they did this with a pencil, mind you. Randy is saying that prosecutors cross-referenced the time and price on the trading cards with official exchange records, and they did not match up.
1: And then if you listen to the tape, no, no, that's wrong, it'd be marked out. And then you would go down and write something under it. And this attorney picked it up and he's, you know, he didn't, he goes, what do you see here? And I smiled and I said, this proves what I've been saying. He goes, I thought so, obviously. A miscalculation by his defense attorney. Yeah, it was a mistake. Big mistake. It went back and forth
0: like this for almost three months. It's important to know that every traitor indicted for crimes in the Swiss Frank pit was included in one big trial. And it was like that for all four trials in the investigation. That's not uncommon, but it's a big reason the trials would take so long. Each charge against each traitor had to be laid out by the prosecutor and examined by each traitor's defense attorney.
1: They have a rule in court. If you're a witness in a case, you are not allowed to be in there while other people are testifying so that your testimony is not tainted by trying to agree with them. So they invoked the rule, as they call it, And I had to wait in the U.S. attorney's office. So I remember six weeks, eight weeks,
0: I don't know. Every defendant had their own lawyer, and each defendant's lawyer cross-examined the agent on the stand. But you know who didn't take the stand? One single victim of the crimes being prosecuted. I asked Randy about that.
1: They have no relevancy to the trial. They have no facts. What could they testify to? I'm a customer, and I put in an order. They knew nothing of the facts of this case. All they could say was, I put in an order. And we know that, so there's no relevancy to the case. They would not be of value. I would think
0: if it was really the case that customers like ADM felt ripped off, they could probably gather some evidence of trades that displayed bad prices, or fills, as they're known. It felt like a lost opportunity for the government because... If a jury couldn't understand the complexity of illegal trades, maybe they could understand a victim who was harmed by those trades. Instead, it was just day after day of monotonous and repetitive detailing of trades, playing hours of chaotic tape recordings and arguing about what everyone was actually hearing on the tapes. Here's a few seconds of an actual FBI recording from inside the pit. Can you imagine being a juror at any of these trials? Here's Chicago Tribune reporter Bill Crawford, who we spoke with in episode four, describing the scene.
4: This was not a trial that you went in and ducked a few minutes and came out. Some of these traders were young. I mean, they're mid to early 20s. And some of them, even in court, would like make faces. And I mean, nobody seemed to think that this had the drama that
0: the government expected to have. One had to wonder, is this really how the government saw the trials playing out? I covered probably 80% of those trials.
4: Half the jurors went to sleep, and I'm, in retrospect, it
0: was chaos. In
4: the middle of some of these trials, they would plead guilty, just plead it out, principally because these are small traders. They've got expensive defense juries. They can't make, make the payments, but you're gonna see a reduction of, of, of charges, mistrials. There was no one beautiful, solid, case out there that sort of told you the whole picture of what's going on. We just saw cats. On July 9th, 1990,
0: the jury returned a verdict in Randy's Swiss franc case. The result? A hung jury on 85 of the 115 charges. And there were no guilty verdicts on serious charges like RICO, mail fraud, or wire fraud. As previously mentioned, a few traders ended up pleading guilty to minor charges in order to end their ordeal, saving money on legal costs, and avoiding any chance of being charged with serious conspiracy or racketeering charges. With two of the four pits down, the government had no major wins under its belt. It was clear Chicago's traders played fast and loose with the rules, but the government was failing to expose large-scale theft or any conspiracy to defraud customers. Next up was the soybean case. John Ryan, the first trader we interviewed in this podcast, was one of 19 indicted in that pit. And we'll hear from him after the break. In the first two trials, the government only indicted eight traders, and they didn't do very well in court. But the soybean case was a different story, with 19 traders indicted. We've already spoken with two of those traders. First was John Ryan. And they didn't do a very good job of grasping what was going on because nobody understood the commodity business. Then there was Dave Skrodsky, who we interviewed in episode six. He cooperated and testified against his fellow traders. Fisher cut bait, or
2: again, you're not supposed to be a trader, but you know, sometimes you got to get out. I was like, I'm
0: getting out, but I hated doing it. The government needed a win badly, but it didn't get off to a great start. The judge in the trial would sit there and draw circles, and his only reaction to anything was, We'll
2: let the jury figure that out. And the jury was half asleep most of the time, so
0: it wasn't a good experience. And I
5: spent four and a
2: half months in court.
0: Just like Randy's Swiss Frank trial, the soybean trial was confusing and tedious. John and the other traders faced long days in court and huge legal bills. Well, if my name was mentioned... Uh, twice a week it was a lot.
2: But I had to sit there. And I don't want to tell you what it cost
5: me to go through that,
0: both financially and mentally. Dave Skrodsky, as a cooperating witness who had already pleaded guilty, had a more bearable experience. I only appeared day and a
2: half, maybe I had to spell out what I would do, you know, how I paid people back if I had an trade with you. But- I wasn't necessarily thrilled.
0: Not every guy's attorney questioned me, just a few. Dave was spared the tedium of a lengthy trial and the costly legal bills that came with it. Although the defense didn't slander him like they did to some government witnesses, there were others in the courtroom who were not so friendly. Those two guys that I was quote-unquote friends with
2: who came to see me testify, we never heard from them. Never talked to them. They just showed up. I saw him sitting in the back of my courtroom. I don't know they wanted to see me shit in my pants, which I practically
0: did, or they wanted to hear what I had to say. But fortunately for Dave, the intimidation was as far as it went. As the verdicts were handed down, he knew he had made the right choice. Once everything played out, and then
2: I saw the sentencing, and you know, the eighteen months, and this and that, and then co charges and. Coach our ideas. I mean, restitution, they had to pay in the fines, and I was like, no, I did the right thing.
0: The jury in the soybean pit returned guilty verdicts on 250 of the 303 charges, including conspiracy and felony charges for several of the traitors that fought the government. Were the soybean traders really that much more crooked than the folks in the Swiss franc pit? I don't think so. A few factors contributed to the stark difference in outcomes. One, Agent Carlson was the first agent assigned to this case, so he had a lot more time to train and learn the ways of the floor. And it paid off. Easy going guy, you know, easy to talk to, friendly. He played his role well, good actor. Another contributing factor was that Dave wasn't alone in cooperating with the government. In fact, almost half of the 19 traders indicted in the soybean pit pled guilty, and that made it a lot easier to convince a jury that they were all guilty. Last up was the Japanese Yen Pit, where trader Ray Pace knocked a broker off his feet in the heat of competition but Ray Pace wasn't on trial for that. You're looking at 20 years.
5: You know, Rico was attached to this case in the beginning, which is even more ridiculous. That's 20 years mandatory for commodity infractions, for a
0: commodity case. The Yen Pit is where Agent Dietrich Folk's stellar work resulted in the indictment of 21 traders, the most of any agent. When he went to trial, just like with Randy, the defense attorneys tried to discredit the audio tapes from the pit as not accurately capturing certain situations and also tried to paint Volk as incompetent. One defense attorney told the jury
3: This one makes me want to puke. That agent had no idea what he was doing on the floor of those pits.
0: In addition, defense attorneys did a good job of casting doubt on Volk's testimony. They said he used coercive and even immoral measures to gather evidence. Covered one trial,
4: and the defendant was a former postman. He happened to like his drink, and they used to take him, the, the two agents would take him to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange lounge or whatever it was. And they'd liquor him up, and they would tell him how they were going to help him with his taxes, get him a good deal, and he'd get shit faced. And he would happily agree to all this, and they indicted him. And they put his wife on the stand, by the way. She breaks down in tears because the guy is a drunk.
0: The broker in question was John Baker, affectionately called the mutant peacock because of his bright trading jackets and flashy attire. We've talked about him in previous episodes. He's the one who was drunk on the couch, eating a Whopper, and pounding old styles, when the FBI came to interrogate him. Here's how T-Bun described it. So they went to one guy's house, poor guy,
2: and he thought they came to drink with him. He liked to drink beer. And he talked to him for like three fucking hours. You know, he was drunk. But he didn't know really he thought they were coming like
4: the party
5: with him. And his wife said, you, you drunken bastard. Ray Pace also knew Baker from back in the day. He was a good guy. He just wanted to go around and be Buddies wouldn't drink at the bar after the close and stuff like that. I'm sure he had a lot more counts or more trades involved because he traded more with them. His problem was thinking that these guys were his friends, and,
0: you know, obviously that cost him a lot. Believe it or not, drinking was at the core of Baker's defense. His lawyer said that the FBI took advantage of him because he was a drunk. They said Volk secretly recorded some 40 hours of barroom conversation with Baker, who they said was nothing more than an old man in a young man's business who abused alcohol to escape the pressures of trading. The defense attorney went on.
2: Volk decided it was a means to accomplish an end. He spent more time
4: in a bar room with Baker than he did at any other time. You got to draw the line somewhere.
0: Baker's lawyer then proceeded to produce a receipt from the bar to prove that his client had as many as 15 beers in two hours. He said that while Volk was on the stand, he downplayed the amount Baker had to drink because in his own mind, he believes he may have crossed the line by sitting there allowing a man to drink that much. Only in Chicago, folks. Only in Chicago. So I was in there for a few
5: weeks. They sat for five months in trial. It was the longest trial that that judge had ever been over in his nine years on the bench. Five months they were in there. It's
0: and, and commodity infractions over and over and over. I mean. Remember, traitors from each pit were being tried as a group. So Ray had to sit and listen to the defense for each of the 21 defendants in the Yen pit.
5: You could look at the jury. and I mean, what happens to somebody if they're hearing the same thing over and over? and They don't even understand it. One of the guys was sleeping. I said, well, this could be good or this could be bad. I don't know which one it is, but...
0: Ray wouldn't stick around to see how the jury would vote because he and his lawyer didn't even think he should be on trial.
5: This isn't a system that these guys came up with. It was being done there. It's, it was
0: business. The way business was done down there. We've heard this from Ray before. He says he didn't create the system that made cheating so easy and that it's been in place for years and years the thing that I didn't like is
5: some of those guys like Leo or you know they would point the finger at like these are the bad apples
0: you know that didn't sit right with me Ray felt like he was being thrown under the bus and it pissed him off and I get it because Leo Malamed and the other heads of the exchanges they are the ones that controlled how the trading floor worked and they're the ones that made the most money from it. But they didn't take any responsibility for enforcing the rules of their own floor. Just listen to Leo from an old interview. Like any other industry, be it securities, be it banking, um,
5: be it Congress, has a, a percent of uh, bad people in it. And that percent uh, gives you a pretty, you know, black eye. You, you like to unroot. It, and you like to throw it out, and we will, wherever we can find it. And we'll do a better job as a result of this notoriety, I'm certain. But I think it's no more than that percent of rotten apples that every industry has. That's what I thought was really wrong. Because there was none of them guys, that if they were in the pit, were conducting business the exact same way. They said, that, said they weren't, they're lying, you
0: know. But they, they kinda like made us the the bad guys, right? So Ray and another defendant named Sam Kelly, their defense strategy was totally different than the other 19 traders in the yen pit. Instead of fighting the charges and pleading not guilty, their defense was, yeah, we broke the exchange rules and we committed trading infractions, but so did everyone. And since it was standard operating procedure, they thought they couldn't be guilty of anything. It was a ballsy stance, and the first time anyone tried to challenge the exchanges and their management for allowing fraud to take place. The other defense attorneys were furious, still claiming that their clients were innocent. Defenses were clashing with some of the other guys, so they severed Sam and I, and then we were going to be tried at a later date. Ray Pace and Sam Kelly asked to be severed from the main trial and requested a separate trial at a later date. With Ray and Sam on the sidelines, the Yen trial came to an end after a grueling six months, which included 20 days of contentious jury deliberation. The results were shocking. There was not a single guilty verdict. A devastating result for the U.S. attorney and the FBI.
5: I was standing in the pit and the Reuters on the TV, the screen. Everybody threw up their cards, they were clapping because it says yen trader is a of 80% of the accounts. So, the floor went nuts, because it seemed like
0: it was a victory that they had beat the government. For the 19 traders who just escaped the government's wrath, it was a glorious moment. So, the traders decided to celebrate. The bar at the Merck Club was packed full of traders, and a jubilant John Baker did what else but buy a round for everyone and everybody's patting me on the shoulder, Ray, you guys are
5: next. Like congratulating you almost, saying you're gonna be fine, everything's gonna be good, you're gonna beat this. Everybody was real optimistic at that time.
0: Ray agrees the exchanges should have been cleaned up, but he didn't understand how this became a huge federal investigation. That's, that's the only way I could explain it. Like you said, a small
5: fine or maybe it, best or worst case scenario I would should say uh, a suspension or a fine.
0: So do you think that the exchange itself should have policed a little bit? I definitely do, Yeah.
5: yeah. Yeah, I definitely do. I think this should have been handled by the exchange, not by the federal
0: government. In a different world, maybe that would have happened, but the FBI did handle this investigation, and at the end of the day, here's the scorecard. In total... There were 46 traitors and two clerks indicted. 20 pled guilty. Of those who went to trial, 14 were found not guilty and 12 were found guilty. Two traitors, Ray Pace and Sam Kelly severed from the main trial. From a strictly numbers standpoint, 32 of 46 either pled or were found guilty. That feels like a lot but it doesn't tell the whole story. And that's because the indictments themselves were pretty weak. There was a well-known hierarchy at these exchanges, and none of the people on top were so much as indicted. So when you compare this case to the New York insider trading cases that resulted in Wall Street heavyweights like Boski and Milliken going to jail and paying nine-figure fines, it's hard to argue that this was a successful outcome for the federal government. So did they do a bad job or were they destined to fail? There were two assistant U.S.
4: attorneys under Anton DeLucas. One of them had a fairly good understanding of how the futures markets worked. And he did a closing argument one day after a four or five day trial and it was right on the money. It made sense. It couldn't have been three weeks later. Another assistant U.S. attorney gets up in front of a jury. It's time for closing arguments and he borrows the closing argument from the first assistant U.S. attorney and he uses it. And I'm sitting there with my mouth half on the floor.
0: Yes, you heard that right. A prosecutor borrowed the closing arguments from a prosecutor in one of the other trials that's not illegal but it does make you wonder if that prosecutor took the time needed to understand this case and
4: i leave the courtroom and i called up jim was his first name i said jim what did you do run your closing argument to tell and so and he said bill Copying is the finest form of, of complimentary that I could possibly imagine. He acknowledged it. He let him use his closing argument. I mean, it's a different set of fundamental facts underlying the case.
0: That prosecutor didn't knock it out of the park. But what about the guys at the top? One of them was U.S. Attorney Dan Webb, who was in office when this case was first approved.
4: Dan Webb has led the charge against judicial corruption. A no-nonsense prosecutor, he has gained a national reputation as a crime fighter.
0: But Webb left the U.S. Attorney's Post in 1985, and he went into private practice. When this case came around, he secured himself a very interesting client. The Board of Trade also has hired former U.S. Attorney Dan Webb to advise its traders about federal white-collar crime laws. That's right, Webb was hired as a legal consultant by the Chicago Board of Trade. Here's David Greasing, author of the book, Brokers, Bagmen and Moles. Our reporting showed Dan Webb launched the investigation
2: and then he was brought in as counsel to one of the exchanges that that would seem to be a conflict of interest
0: And it gets worse. Remember the trader from the beginning of the episode who held out before pleading guilty to RICO charges?
2: Uh, the second broker, the one that I dealt with m- most frequently, uh, changed lawyers a couple times and was just held out for quite a while before he ultimately ended up pleading out. And
0: as a result, had to plead out to the whole thing as my recollection. After changing lawyers a couple of times, he ended up with Dan Webb. Webb convinced that broker to be the first trader to plead guilty to conspiracy charges, likely so that all the other traders would be scared shitless. The whole thing feels dirty. Or, as T-Bun puts it,
2: Dan Webb. Here's a guy who wants to put everybody in jail, and now he charges you $700 to represent you. It's all like a group. The prosecutor wants to be in the law firm that's getting the guys off. The guys in the law firm want to be the judge. It's all a fucking circle.
0: In their book, authors David Greasing and Lori Morse went further. They said that this broker's guilty plea, quote, cemented the government's resolve to stand by the RICO charges against other traders seeking to arrange plea agreements. Unquote, so, yeah, it's all a fucking circle. I wondered if, in hindsight, FBI agents Mike and Randy thought the investigations were worth it. Here's Randy
1: I do, uh, and the reason I do is not because we got ten percent or even five percent of the people that were doing the same stuff. But I think it needed to be brought forward that this was happening and open the doors for the people that had the authority to do something, to do something. For, for doing things in the pit, you were, you know, the self-regulation was a joke. Like when Ray slugged that guy, I think he was given a week out.
0: I have to agree with Randy here. Self-regulation was a joke.
2: I think our attitude was, as an undercover, I did that accomplish what we were supposed to accomplish, exposing in the pit I was in, and I knew the other agents had exposed the same type of conduct that had been hinted to. There were no targets, it was just, we had four agents, we put them in four spots, they all found the same thing.
0: This conversation helped me to understand that the FBI isn't judge, jury, and executioner. It was part of a much larger system. My expectation was that
2: what would happen would be that, with the exposure of what was going on at the exchanges, that all of this, you know, kind of shroud of secrecy that surrounded the business at the exchanges, as far as how efficient everything operated, to kind of poke a pin in that bubble and make the public realize, and more importantly, the regulators in Congress realize that this doesn't work. The
0: FBI's main role in this case was to show that the exchanges were crooked, and while not as impressively as they'd hoped they accomplished that
1: mission. As for making sure the exchanges were properly regulated... That was beyond our pay grade. That wasn't our job. I think our job was to at least show it was in existence. And that's Congress's job, or, you know, people higher up to address it.
0: While I might not have agreed with their methods, I definitely see why these markets needed to be cleaned up. Reading thousands of pages of trial transcripts has shown me that there was much more theft than I originally thought. One broker even bragged to an agent that he had four bagmen in his pit that were good for $100,000 or more in a given day. The indictments mentioned some heavy-duty illegal trades. They weren't all $12.50 like T-Bun said. Maybe I just let my personal thoughts about guys like Ray and T-Bun cloud my ability to see
1: the big picture. The more you expose, the more impetus there is for change, for cleaning it up, for for the customers, you know. So let's get this out and let's see if the public and the government wants to do something about it. That's not our job again. As Randy and
0: Mike said, that was Congress's job and shortly after the investigation was announced, a Senate subcommittee called on the heads of the Merck and the Board of Trade to answer some pretty tough questions. What does that do for confidence in these markets?
4: What do we say to the farmers out there who uh, are dependent on these markets to get a fair deal?
1: The system has simply not worked. Rules have been ignored. Customers have not been protected. And without the public's trust, futures markets cannot function.
2: I'll say there's some out there in those exchanges that are ill-trained and ill-motivated. And they ought to be found out and eliminated.
0: That's next time on Brokers, Bagmen, and Moles. Before you go, if you or someone you know might have a hot tip or just a funny story related to our show... We have a hotline for you. Call us at 646-820-1452. That's 646-820-1452. And please follow us on social media. Our handle is at Entropy Media Co. That's at Entropy Media Co. Where we'll be posting additional information about the case and awesome behind-the-scenes action. This has been a production of Entropy Media in association with Stretch Productions. This is Entropy's very first show, so if you've enjoyed it, please follow wherever you listen to podcasts and rate us there, too. Every follow, rating, or even a personal recommendation to a friend or family member really helps. I'm your host, Anjay Nagpal. Our showrunner and senior producer is Danielle Elliott. Our producer is Jen Swan. Our executive producers are Tim Hendricks, Kevin Stretch Huff, and Dennis Stratton. Original music, sound design, and editing by Gerard Bauer. Voice acting by Robert C. Music clearances by Deborah Manis Gardner from DMG Clearances. Production legal by Bruns, Brennan, and Barry. Legal clearance, fair use by Rachel Strom at Davis Wright Tremaine. Fact-checking by Delilah Friedler. Show art by Rebecca Hendon. And from Entropy Media... Our in-house executive producer is Josh Fjellstad. Our head of operations is Nuna Ebo. Our project manager is Sebastian Perry. Our associate producer is Heidi Rudvolts. Our development coordinator is Simona Kessler. And I want to send a very special thanks to Lori Morse and David Griesen.